We've kicked off a new series uh, right now, or last week we kicked off a new series. We talked about David, the David and Goliath battle there in 1 Samuel, and today we're going to look at a guy named Gideon in the Bible, and it's going to be an exciting time, but before we do, I promised some people that I would really embarrass my wife, and I'm going to keep true to my promise, and there is a little bit of a tie-in here, but I need somebody to come up here and help me who knows the full, the whole thing of the theme song of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Come on, I know there's probably more. Who knows the whole theme song and come up here and do the whole theme song with me? Don't leave me hanging. I know there's somebody in here that knows the whole theme song of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Somebody. You got a mic? You got a mic? Where's the mic? Get your mic. Let's do this. <clears throat> All right. Do you remember? You remember how it goes? You got it? It's old school. That's like, that, was, that was out before you were even born. How do you know about that? That doesn't mean I don't know it. Yeah, okay. Okay, so you ready? Yeah. In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground, where I spend most of my days, chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, shooting some b-ball outside of the cool, when a couple of guys, they were up to no good, started making trouble in the neighborhood. I got in one little fight, my mom got scared, you said, you move away, you're to your uncle at Bel I whistled for a cab, and when it came here, to the license plate said fresh and had a dice in the mirror. If anything, I thought this cab was rare. They said, Holmes, forget it, your home's to Bel We're not done yet. I pulled up to the house about seven or eight, and I yelled to the cab, your home, smell you later. I looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne, the fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, give it up for Kirsten, nice. So, nice, pound it, pound it. So the story we're going to look at today is we're going to look at a story of Israel in which, yeah, I know, I got your attention and you're ready to learn what the heck that has to do with Judges chapter 6 today. We're going to look to a text in which we're going to see two types of underdogs today. I don't know about for you, but like when I watch my team, I, I feel like my teams are always shooting themselves in the foot. And they're an underdog by their own choice. And if you think about like, like Will Smith, like he, he grew up in kind of the projects of West Philadelphia, and he always got himself into trouble. And it was his own disobedience, it was his own kind of thinking that put himself in these underdog situations, that the whole episode was him crawling out of the pickle that he got himself in. You guys remember, it was like always, that was always the thing, what did Will do this time? And we're going to look at, at a text here in Judges chapter 6, in which Israel is, has been the same way. They've gotten themselves in such a difficult situation by their own disobedience. And as we go through the text, what we're going to find is that Gideon, on the other hand, he was one man that he he was not an underdog by choice, but he was an underdog by design, that God actually planned for him to be an underdog. And so we'll unpack this as we go through. That'll be the end of the Will Smith and Fresh Prince connections, okay? Okay. So if we read into the very end of chapter 5, it tells us that Israel experienced a season of peace for 40 years, like a season of peace. It sounds pretty good right now in the climate that we, the global climate that we live politically and socially. Some peace for about 40 years would be nice, for one or four years would be nice. But they experienced it for 40 years is what the end of chapter 5 tells us. And by verse 1, by the time we flip the page to chapter 6, it tells us, that Israel began to do, again, Israel began to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they did it so much that in idol worship and disobedience towards God, 
God loves Israel and he chose Israel, but just they don't always please him. They, they, they're kind of an often great connector for us to be reminded of God's faithfulness even when we mess up. He's still pursuing us and loving us. And we see that Israel in their idol worship and their disobedience of God, it finally gets to a place where God's like, look. And I think parents in this room, you, you probably get it if you're not a parent too, but I think parents especially get this because we get there with our kids when we tell them not to touch the stove seven times. And like after that, we're like, look, you're so thick skulled. I can't imagine where you got that from being so stubborn. You're just going to have to touch the stove to figure it out. So I'm just going to step back. And that's what God did with Israel. He just, he just took his hand off and gave them over to a group called the Midianites. It's a people group that <clears throat> began to oppress Israel. And they, when I say oppress, like serious oppression, like we don't know what it's like to survive on the land, most of us. I, I doubt there's very, just a few of us that know what it's like to survive on the land. We survive on fast food and grocery stores. But they survived on the land, and every single time they would go to plant, and they would get a harvest going, and they would try to get their life. God had given them over to the hand of the Midianites, that the Midianites, another group called the Amalekites, and all these eastern people would come in, and they would ravage their land. They would rip up their crops and just make their life a living hell. They would steal their, their cattle that they had raised uh, for a year that they were finally going to be able to get some meat off of. They would take their sheep. They would take their goats. And they just ravaged them and made their life terrible. And eventually it gets to the point where finally, verse 6 tells us that finally it got so bad that Israel was like, okay, God, we need you. They begin to cry out to the Lord is what this verse 6 tells us. So as they cried out to the Lord, God said, okay, so he sends them a prophet. He goes and he tells them and he encourages them and he reminds them of what God has done for them. He reminds them that I chose you, I loved you, and I brought you out of slavery once again, but your disobedience, your idol worship has got you in this place. You're, you're an underdog by choice, not by design right now. And he's, and he's bringing this prophet to them to remind them of this, and he, he says, verse 10 tells us, that do not worship, this is what the, the prophet said, don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. And this first 10 verses, just begin to contextualize this in your own life. How many times can you remember back to a time where it got so bad, and maybe you're there today, maybe not, but you've, you've been in a place where it was so bad, and you had walked in disobedience, or you had worshipped other things, and eventually it got so bad that you finally cried out to the Lord, said, okay, okay, God. Or have you gotten to the place where God finally sent someone along to you and said, hey, here's, here's the problem, and you can't do this anymore and I think even as Americans, we can identify with this phrase right now. If we just contextualize this, do not worship the gods of the Americans in whose land you live. If we just, if we just put the word Americans, and I'm not all about reading the scriptures through the American lens, but when we're going to contextualize this and make this like for us in this season, what would God say to us about that? Who were, what are the gods of the Americans? The God of capitalism? the God of individualism, the God of narcissism, where we think everything revolves around us, the God of hedonism, that we just pursue as much pleasure with every toy and with every day, the God of nationalism has been in the news in recent days. 
What kind of idols would God come to us today with a prophet and say, don't worship the gods of the Americans, but worship. Don't forget what I told you. Have no other gods before me. And so he says this to them, and, and, and God um, you know, gives them this word that, hey, you got to stop worshiping the idols. And he was going to use a man named Gideon in a very peculiar situation and raise him up to bring victory to the people of Israel and bring them freedom once again. God's faithfulness is so true in our lives today. We flip over to verse 11, and let's read just verses 11 and 12 here, and we'll begin to get into the meat of this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. It looks like Oprah, but it's Ophrah. That belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, and Joash is Gideon's dad, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Let's just stop right there and process that. Because first of all, the angel of the Lord, most theologians believe that this was actually an angelic form of Jesus. It wasn't him in his earthly body. We'd wait until the, birth, the virgin birth for Jesus in his earthly body. But, but the, the common thought is that this was actually an angel form of the Lord, of Jesus. And so here, he's appeared before him, and he shows up under this tree that Gideon finds himself in. And he's in, and if you're anything like me, I don't know much about wine pressing and threshing wheat. Uh, when's the last time you've done that? But just to give you a, a little idea, it would be a hole, a sunken hole, about maybe the size that I'm at. They would have dug this out, and they would throw all the grapes and things that they were going to make wine out of, and they would press it down with their feet and with their and with uh, different tools to smash everything until finally they would gather it up and let it ferment. And here we see that he is in a wine press, but he's not pressing grapes. He's not making wine. He's threshing wheat, which threshing wheat was not done in a wine press. Threshing wheat happened on top of a hill. Threshing wheat happened on top of a mountain because there's the wheat part, and then there's what they call the chaff or the shaft. I've never known how to pronounce that. It's a weird word to me. Anyway, but they would do that on top of the hill or the mountain because they could beat it and shake it, and as they would beat it and shake it, the chaff would blow away in the wind, and the wheat would fall, and they would collect it and go and do what they were going to do with the wheat. So you'd usually do it on the mountain, but because of fear of the Midianites, we see Gideon in a wine press. But he's not pressing grapes, he's threshing wheat. And just think about that, being in a hole when you really rely on the wind to shake the... Like, this was a difficult situation. It was not super effective. And here he has Jesus show up to find him doing ineffective work that he's fearful of, that he's probably embarrassed by and humiliated by. Like, what are you doing in a hole threshing wheat? That's not even how you do this. And that's where we find Gideon and what, and I just, in my own heart, I, I read this and I just said, God, whenever you show up, I just want to be busy <laughs> working about the Father's business. And for Gideon, he was just fighting to survive. He was just fighting to, to live. You see, the Israelites were all on the side of a mountain living in fear for the Midianites that would come in. They were living in these clefts of the rock or like small cave that would shelter them a little bit from the wind. And, and here he runs down to this hole to thresh wheat in a wine press. And then 
But everybody would look at this and be like, this is ridiculous. But what God says to him is, is just as peculiar as the circumstance that Gideon finds himself in. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Just think about this for a second. He's being oppressed, like everything's been ravaged completely. They're living in the side of a mountain. It just doesn't feel like one of those times that God is, you feel like God is with you. You probably know that he's with you, but he just, just doesn't feel like it, and it sure as heck doesn't look like it. You ever been there in your life, like, I know God's with me, I believe he's with me, it just doesn't look like it, and it sure doesn't feel like it. That's where he finds Gideon, and he says, the Lord is with you. It's a reminder of God's presence in his life. And then he calls him mighty warrior. <clears throat> when Taryn and I were walking around uh, Europe uh, a couple years ago, we, we, wa- we did a walking tour through Paris. And the tour guide took us to all these different monuments of these, these commanders and Joan of Arc. And he pointed out that if you notice the feet of the horse that every single one of them are riding on, they're always riding on a horse, If you notice the feet, the feet will tell you something about how that commander or that person died. Joan of Arc's feet, both feet in the air because she died as a revolutionary in battle. Some that were more common um, deaths, they were just about their duties. One leg would be lifted. If they died of natural causes, the other leg would be lifted. If they died in an embarrassing death, something that the people thought was just embarrassing or humiliating, both feet would be down. And I think the same way that they do that with the legs, I think when we get a picture of something, the first glimpse we get of a person in the scriptures, I think says a lot about the story God's about to tell. Like with Abraham, he was an, an older man. With Moses, he was an abandoned, orphaned child. With Jesus, born of a virgin in a manger. Like the, I think they're all saying something about the story that God's going to tell and the trajectory there. And so when he finds this super common guy doing something kind of stupid, but he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I feel like God is screaming something to us today, is that our identity is defined and it's transformed by his presence. Our identity is transformed and shaped by his presence. He didn't, like nobody else looking at that circumstance or situation said, there's a mighty warrior right there, you know, uh, you know, getting the threshing the wheat in a wine press. That guy's sharp right there. You know, defeated and living in the side of a mountain. Nobody looked at that and said, "Mighty warrior." And it's so apropos that he would say, "The Lord is with you, mighty warrior," because our identity is shaped by His presence. And maybe in this room, like you've you've been told lies of the enemy. You've been told, like the devil is a liar, like that's what he, he does. And you've been told lies of the enemy about who you are and, and, and w- your, where your identity comes from. And I don't know where that's come from, but all of us get fed those because that's what the devil does. He, he seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he'll do that through lying to us first. If he can get us deceived that we are worth nothing. If he can get us deceived that we are an idiot. If he can get, get us deceived that we are what our abuser did to If we can get this, so um, this week, uh, if you're having trouble with this, Camden has been talking about the devil a lot. He's three. He's three. He's talking about the devil a lot, and it's kind of weird, and, uh, but he's like super passionate about it. And <laughs> he's super passionate, like not in like a, a weird way, sort of weird, but not super weird. And 
he, he keeps talking about the devil and that he's a liar, and he's like, I'm going to kick the devil to the wild, wild west. And so if you're in here and you've been fed those lies that like you need to do like Camden, you just need to kick the liar to the wild, wild west because our identity is shaped by his presence. Romans 8.1 is so true in our lives. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When our, when our lives are not in Christ, we are open to attack because our faith, our life is, our identity is not in Christ. But when it's in Christ, there's no condemnation. There is conviction of the Holy Spirit, and thank God for that, but there's no condemnation. And we need to, we need to let this settle into our heart today that God is with us, and, and maybe if everybody else looks on and says, you're an idiot. If maybe that's the lie that's been told to you, hear that his presence, the Lord is with you today, mighty warrior. And the, the difference between who you were yesterday and who you are called to be tomorrow is you being in his presence today. The difference of who you were yesterday and who you are called to be tomorrow is you being in his presence today. And, it's, and you say, well, how can I be in his presence? God is omnipresence. I can never, he's omnipresent. I can never leave his presence, right? True. True, but there's a difference when I'm, when I'm at dinner with my wife and when I'm present with my wife. There's a difference when I'm sitting down playing with my children and there's a difference or, or when I'm, I'm in the same room as my children there's another difference when I'm present with them and engaged in relationship with them. And that's the same true of us. Entering into his presence means I'm actually participating in it, not just like I'm always in his presence. And we can, I'm actually participating in it. And the transformation between who you used to be and who you are called to be happens when we engage and we are present Engage his presence. Let's continue reading. There's more that God wants to speak to us in this. Verse 13, and we'll read through 16 here. Pardon me, my Lord. I love the politeness that he speaks to the angel of the Lord. It's a good idea. Uh, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Like, where are his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? This is so, such an important text for us to read right now in the landscape, the global landscape that we're in. Because a lot of people are asking this question. If God is so good, if he is so with us, then why has all this happened? Why the earthquakes? Why the hurricanes? Why the fires? Why the floods? Why the cancer? Why the disease? Why the fascist leaders? What, why has all this happened to us? It's a, it's a question of our time. And I just want to tell you today that God's not scared off by your questions, but the manner in which we ask those questions are vitally important and dictate God's response to them. We, we revere Job as this incredible man of faith because he was. But if you read the whole text and not just hear about the legend of Job, but read the whole text, the whole story, by the end of Job, like those last four or five chapters, things get weird real quick. And who we thought Job was, like he finally hits a point where like I'm over it. 
I'm over it. And he begins to get furious at God. Like, why has all this happened to us? And he begins to take it out on God. And most of us would think, God, he deserves a pass on this one. Dude's been super faithful. Like, let's, but God's response is not that. He is like, son, who do you think you are? You're talking to the creator of the universe. And, and at no season in our life is there a time where we should well up in pride. God can handle our anger. He's not afraid of our anger. He can handle our frustration, our doubts, our fears, our insecurities, our questions. But we approach Almighty God with humility. And that's what we do see out of Gideon here. And I think it was just pleasing to the Lord that he was, pardon me, Lord. That wasn't in the notes, but that's just what I see here. And it's a question But I just want you to know that your calling is not halted by your questions. Your calling's not halted by your doubts, by your fears, by your insecurities. It's not halted. Just because you're wrestling with some hard truth, you're wrestling with why God is doing it in this way does not halt you from where he is taking you and who he's called you to be. He goes on to say in verse 14, go in the strength you have. I love this text, because most of us, we think we need more than what we have before we step out into what God's called us to do. We think we need more than what we have, and what this text and what verse 16 will tell us, and I'll go ahead and go there, pardon me, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, how? How? Because I'm going to be with you. Because I'm going to be with you. See, our victory is not dependent on our strength. Our victory is dependent on his, his strength. Our victory is dependent on him being present. And so we have nothing to fear. Not only is our identity shaped in his presence, our victory is determined and dependent on his presence. But many times we're like, God, I don't have enough. I'm not ready for this. I'm not equipped for this. My claim's the weakest. I'm not, I'm slow. I stutter. I can't learn things quickly. I'm, but this is my past, and we've got the excuses that we bring to God of why we can't. And I love what God says here. He could have phrased it another way, but he says, go with the strength you have, bud. Why? Because your strength is in me, and that's all you have. That's all you need. You you have me, and like, this victory is not about your strength. It's about my presence, and that I am going with you, and it's about the calling that I've placed on your life, and if you're feeling insecure about anything in your life, and you've got a reason why my clan's the weakest, or this or that, just hear that your victory is not dependent on you. It's, It's determined and Um, dictated by his presence, not by your own strength. So he says, go with what you have because in our weakness, he is strong. He gets more glory out of like that and we're gonna see that as we turn over to chapter seven. I'll just paraphrase the rest of chapter six for you. Gideon's basically like, good talk, good talk, God. I enjoyed that. Um, I feel a little more encouraged but like my faith isn't there yet. I need a little more, (laughs) And uh, you ever been there? Like, I just need a little bit more, God. Another sign, that'd be cool. And so he ends up asking for three signs, and God meets him there. And I think the humility in which the honesty in his approach to the Lord is part of why God met him in a need for confirmations. 
where his faith was at. The first one, he, he tells them, to, the angel of the Lord says, slaughter this young goat and bring this goat and put it on a rock and bring some communion bread, bring some unleavened bread and put it on the rock and take some broth and pour that broth all over this food in this rock. And he said, and when he had laid that, and we've got soaking wet meat and bread, the angel of the Lord took the tip of his angelic staff and touched this wet food on a rock and fire flamed up, and it consumed all of the food, and it was the first moment in which he said, whoa, God is here. God is present, and I can walk in. He ended up building an altar there called Jehovah Shalom. God is my peace, that God's got this. I can go in this next season in peace, but God said, we're not done with building your faith. He, he actually said, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go and all these idols that have been laid out, these idols of Baal that Israel, my people, have been worshiping instead of me, I need you to destroy all those, and then I want you to make a sacrifice to me. And so that sounds all well and good, but in that time, like, people worshiped Baal. That was his idols. That was their idols, the community. That was, they were worshiping, and they thought everything was coming from Baal. That's why this whole situation has, has got them where it is. And they find themselves in this place, and um, Gideon's like, so we're going to do this at night, because I'm going to have a, you know, a riot on my hands if I do this during the day, and I start killing their gods of capitalism, and I start taking out their gods of you name it. For me, like, I always know I'm a little bit into my television when I get too mad at people stepping in front of it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Get over! I get f- more frustrated by it. And, and I get frustrated by the thing. But I bet, and what happens is so, so they, they tear down the idols in the middle of the night, Gideon and 10 other men, they tear down the idols, and the next morning, people are furious about their idols that have been broken down. I bet there's an idol right now in your life, something in your life that if somebody tore it down or took it away, you'd be mad about it. There's something right now that, that, that if someone gets in the way, we're angry about it. And that's when we know we, we've got our priorities out of order, that our worship is, is to other lowercase gods and not to the almighty God. Because when we're in the presence of God and he's first, everything else comes into place and perspective. So people are mad and Joash, his father, is like, hey, chill out. <laughs> um, let's, let's be easy about this. Like, what are, you, are you seriously going to fight and argue over a dead, like, like a, a stupid little Baal idol? You're going to fight and riot over this? Well, they're upset. God does these two more miracles in his life, and, and I just want to just briefly tell you this. Like, as I remember before we moved here to Jacksonville in 2012, all through the year of 2011, God did three financial miracles in our life to build our faith for the battle. But the miracles that he's done since 2012 we moved here has been far greater. See, God will add to our faith for the battle, but he's going to multiply our faith in the battle. He'll add to our faith for the battle, but he will multiply our faith when we get in the battle. And that's good news because we need it. Let's look at chapter 7, and we'll see why we need it in the battle. Um, And so they sacrifice um, at that place, and they tore down the idols, and they build a proper altar to the Lord. 
Let's look at at chapter 7 here. Um, We'll pick up at verse 2. Pick up at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you've got too many men. I cannot, some ladies like know, like sometimes when there's too many men in the house, like right before we had our little daughter, we were saying, do we want, do we want another boy or girl? Like it matters what we want. Um, But I was like, I want a little girl because there's way too much testosterone in here. God's like, there's way too much testosterone. Um, No, he says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So um, 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. That's original... that's an original 32,000 men, and it gets cut down to 10,000. Like, that's a lot of people leaving. And how did he decide which ones were leaving? Those that were afraid. Those that were afraid. And some of the times, like, God has, is calling us into something that will challenge our obedience, that will challenge our faith, that will expand our faith to trust in him, but if he's given us miracle after miracle after miracle, three miracles leading up to the battle, like we've got to cling to that faith that was built in that time. And I think God has met us in the lead up to the battle, but sometimes we've forgotten about what he's done. And here, 22,000 men left, and God wants people who are full of faith. That's the, the essence of faithfulness is, is being filled with faith, a regular Basis. That's a huge loss. Like two thirds of the people left. And so we read on to verse four as if that wasn't enough to leave. But the Lord said to Gideon, There's still too many men. Gideon's like, I disagree. There's 120,000 of them. Like, we need more men, not less men. He said to Gideon, There's still too many men. So take them down to the water, and I'm going to show, I'll, I'll thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drink with from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Do you see the picture there? Like He's saying those that just come down here and just jump into the water and begin to drink with their, their tongue and their head down, their face down. They're not fit for the battle that I'm calling them to. But those that cup and stay alert and pull the water to their mouth, they're, they're the ones I want for battle. God's saying something to us here on a lot of different levels. One is that God can do more with less, and he loves to do more with less. So if you're a person that always felt like you've got less, God loves to work with you. He's present with you, because the victory is about his glory, and our victory that we see, that we rejoice in, is about him. But God's also saying something here about the type of people that he wants in battle, people that are filled with faith, that aren't going to be trembling when something crazy goes down. 
going to be walking in faith knowing that his presence has defined my identity and, and my victory is defined by his presence. And as long as I stay in his presence, take everything you want, but just give me Jesus and let me stay in his presence. It's going to be okay. The victory is secure. <laughs> I had a funny thing happen um, just yesterday. So back in, in June, um, friend of Taryn and I's. I went to school with the wife, and uh, her husband has become a, men- a little bit of a mentor of mine, for sure, become a mentor of mine. And uh, I had this crazy dream that he and his wife were pregnant, and they were pregnant with a boy. And I knew the child's name and everything, like in the dream. And I don't have like a lot of dreams like this, but I had this dream, and um, I didn't know what to do with it, right? You don't know what, something happens like this. And so and I saw him just like a, two days later, two or three days later, and so it was obviously for something. I, I, I don't think that. I don't have dreams all the time. So like, I told him this, and I said, man, I, I don't know if this is prophetic or what. You can do with it what you want. But um, God gave me this dream that you're going to have a boy. And um, yeah, so there's that. Here's his name. You don't have to name him that. I don't know if that's a God thing or that just like me identifying it was a boy, the boy's name. He's like, wow. He's like, that's incredible. He's like, we've been praying for uh, over a, a year, year and a half now. We've been trying to have a kid. We haven't been able to. And, um, and so I was like, oh, wow, man, that's, that's heavy. Like, we don't get to see each other talk personally like that a lot. And it's like, that's, that's crazy, man. So I'll, I'll be praying for that. And if this is God, he'll, he'll do it. And so yesterday morning, Taryn opened up Facebook and said, um, hey, did you know they're pregnant? And I just laughed. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're due in, in March. I said, oh, wow. What is it, nine months, 10 months, 40 weeks? And like, doing the math, like, she's got pregnant that week. Like, he didn't even know she was pregnant <laughs> um, at that time. And, and later in the day, I just happened to open Facebook, I guess, to check on this whole, whole deal, what's going on. And it just happened to be them Facebook Live, the gender reveal. <laughs> and they throw this ball up, and he, he swings this baseball bat and crushes this little ball, and blue goes everywhere. And, and it was a boy. It's a boy. And I was just like, wow, God's faithful. And, and I just began to think on that just with a smile on my head, like how cool is God? How awesome is God? And um, I didn't feel like I was moving into too hard of a place of like, look at what I did, because I had nothing to do with that. But God began to quicken me. Don't think this is about you. Don't, don't make this about you, because this is not about you. And eliminating men, getting it down to to where only God can receive the glory. We must decrease so that he can increase, is what John said in his gospel. That I must decrease so that that he can increase. And God is calling us today to to put ourselves in his presence and let our identity be transformed there and to to be reminded that our victory is not dependent on on our part in it. It's just the fact that he is present and, and our victory is in his presence. Because all the glory is for him, and it's all for what he does. And so I don't know where you're at here today, but I do know what God is calling us to. He's calling us to be a people of faith. He's, got, he's calling us to be a people that are defined by his presence. He's calling us to be a people that realize that everything in this life, everything that he has given us, it is for his glory and for his kingdom his kingdom alone. He's called us to be a people of faith, a people alert and watching, 
ready for the spiritual battle that we are in the midst of. And so if you've been putting your head down, just lapping, like, what can I get from this? Don't forget, you're a warrior. God called you and you're a warrior. Keep your head up. Stay alert for what he's calling you to. Stay alert. He's calling you into battle. The story ends just briefly after this. God gives him this great idea. Here's what you're going to do, Gideon. You're going to take these 300 men and you're going to go down to the valley where the Midianites are staying. You're going to go there and you're going to surround their camp. And all around... Every person is to have a glass jar in their hand and a trumpet in the other and there's torches stuck in the ground. He said, and and at the right time, when one of those trumpets go, everybody blows their trumpet, break the glass, and hold up the torch. 300 men against a village, a cold city of 125,000 people plus. At this time, the trumpets blow, and people are in the middle of the night. They wake up, and they're flipping out, thinking that they've got this giant army coming against them. And the people run in fear. The people even begin to kill one another because they didn't want to die a dishonorable death. They wanted to die an honorable death, and that was part of their culture. And God set them free in that time to a new season. I just wonder what he wants to do in our lives today and set us free into a new season of welcoming his presence, a new season of walking as a mighty warrior as God has called you a mighty warrior, not as any other words that have come from your identity, but from the Lord Almighty. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to come to the table and we're going to come and pray and celebrate his goodness. And can you just take a posture of, God, I want to hear what you're saying to me right now. Whatever that posture is for you, if you need to sit down or bow down or raise your hands or bow your head, whatever you need to do posture-wise to just say, God, I, I hope my heart's ready, but like I, I, it's ready, God. And I'm, I'm just going to take a posture of readiness and surrender and submitting my will to you, God. Laying my insecurities at your feet, God. It's all for you. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word, this man of faith that was not an underdog by choice, but an underdog by design, God, that you were going to use his obedience and build his faith to a place where he could conquer nations because of your presence. God, I just pray right now that you would raise us up out of our wine presses, threshing wheat throughout the week and just wake us up to the calling that you've placed on our life and lead us, build our faith for the battle and multiply it in it. God, I trust you in this time. I declare your promises over your people today. I pray that we would walk in the identity given from you, our Father, as sons and daughters in this room, and we would walk in boldness and confidence and alertness for the calling that you've placed on our lives. I thank you for it, in Christ's name.